You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we bring you a tale of two bakeries. Actually, over the next two days, HPR was there the morning that Kanyoe Bakery shut down this past Sunday. After more than seven decades, the Mizota Family Bakery supported a community with its daily bread and other offerings. The sign in the window said, thank you for the sweet memories. It was a very emotional day for everyone. You know, they ran out of pastries, pies, and cakes before the scheduled noon closing. Workers gathered in the back parking lot exchanging hugs. Former employees stopped by to thank them for being a part of the community for so long. And their customers weren't shy about how they felt. Here's a sampling of what the community wanted to say to the family. We first hear from Suzette, who bought pastries for a friend who now lives in the Lone Star State. She lives in Texas, and she called me and said, Susie, I saw it online that they were going to close. So she told me, go to Kanioi Bakery and get her a glazed donut with the chocolate fill. And I said, you're crazy. I'm not going to stand in that line. So anyway, I did like a dummy and for an hour didn't have so i bought the glazed donuts so tomorrow i'm going to send it to her in the mail with the two little chocolate bars to put in the middle she can melt them because it will it will because the donut ain't going to spoil so i froze it so it's been freezing now for like three days but i came for that same day for the bread pudding able to get it this morning yeah they have it it's so awesome i was so excited because i was just like oh my god i stood in the line for one donut and now i came today and they had my bread pudding i know are you gonna freeze yours or are you gonna uh, enjoy it right now oh i'm gonna enjoy it believe me i'm gonna enjoy it because i was just like oh my god i love bread pudding and they theirs is so good this has been around so long and it's gonna be a loss to everybody it's a wonderful place you know and now I don't know and my gosh you're gonna send it uh, a donut to Texas of all places <laughs> yeah I'm putting it in the mail tomorrow <laughs> because that's what she wanted no really she told me for me to eat it and I told her no I'm on a diet I can't eat that donut they used to live here and my kids and they used to make all these oh my god fabulous ice cream cakes all my kids had ice cream cakes, and the decorator was especially good. Anything I asked for, she did more than, in fact, one time she, she did my son's uh, drawing of a dragon. He drew the dragon, and she replicated it on the, on the cake. It was just fabulous. My, it's really kind of woven in your family history. Oh, yeah, when, we, when I lived with the kids here in Kaneohe, they all got ice cream cakes. They looked forward to it. My daughter's first birthday, there was a Japanese garden, and she flourished it with a bridge and the cherry blossoms. And then my uh, middle son, she did a train coming through the tunnel. <laughs> I have pictures, but it's, oh, it's just, this lady was just fabulous. I think it was an elderly lady, but they stopped making the ice cream cakes. So, so what did you come to pick up today? Anything? <laughs> Whatever they had. I was looking for all the cream pies, but they're all gone. So I saw a cherry pie, and there's a, um, there was a guava. Yeah. They still have some left, I saw, I think. Yeah. Oh, my God. That looks really good. But I got I to gotta get it to my kids, my, my grown kids, because they're here. So I tell them I deliver. <laughs> well, is there anything you want to say just to the owners here of this bakery? Oh, those are the memories, and I posted that, the, the ice cream cakes, just fabulous. And then after church, we would come here and get the donuts, yeah. But it was a mainstay. The only day they closed was New Year's Day. And that was Barbara sharing her family stories tied to the neighborhood bakery. Sandra, Denise, and Ed round out our voices. We live so close, but every Sunday, I try to go, come here pick up some good to go to the church. I really love them. Yeah, and so what did you pick up today? Oh, I picked pastries and they didn't have too many. Just a few of them, but I told them to put in anything what they have. <laughs> I want to be supportive and I'm very sad to see another business leaving Hawaii and closing the doors 
after Metal Gold, Love's Bakery, Sears, Kmart. We have more people on this island than ever before, and more stores are closed. Uh, price busters are all leaving. We need businesses here, and not just a few big corporations. The small mom and pop that sustain our island and people. And uh, with big things leaving, Metal Gold and Love's Bakery, our food source is at risk also. So I'm coming here to be supportive before I go to church and get my Cocoa Puffs and whatever else is left on the shelf. I'm not sure that they have any left. Oh, 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 oh no! I should have ordered ahead of time, but I'm coming to be supportive on it. It's last day. I think learning how to bake and taking over. I wish somebody would pass that, that technology on to our younger shoemaking, watchmaking, all those are all gone. There's no more of those little stores and bakeries are leaving. I know, there, and there's something about bread that, you know. It's the bread of life. Man cannot live by bread alone, but women can. <laughs> we can live by donuts. <laughs> what did you come here today to buy? I bought um, the lemon, lemon cake, the famous bread pudding. The pies all gone. The uh, the famous custard pies and stuff. It's all gone. So how long have you been coming to this bakery? Seventy years. Seventy actually seventy one years. I was seventy years. I was about one years old. Oh my gosh! So since they opened. My, my mom used to come bring me here, and also my aunties, uncles. We all used to come here before we go to Kaneohe Theater. It's right over there. What are your thoughts coming here on the very last day? I show my appreciation. I know them a long time, from high school and everything. Show my appreciation, that's all. Yeah, I know. And the memories, and all the memories that goes along with, uh, with this bakery. And that was Ed, Denise, Sandra, Barbara, and Suzette, all customers of the Windward Oahu Bakery, uh, bidding aloha to the small family business uh, who've been a part of the community for such a long time. And we've just learned that the Kaneohe property on Kamehameha Highway is being put up for sale. Any takers out there? Any bakers willing to step in to create new memories for families? Tomorrow we talk about Love's Bakery, a much larger commercial business which has been around 170 years. It will lay off more than 200 workers on Wednesday, its final day of retail operation. Though, as we have just learned, the brands may live on as part of the deal with a Portland bakery. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminals to continue serving Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Residents of the Greek island of Lesbos sang Greece's national anthem to protest a visit by an official from the European Union. The EU plans to spend millions to build a new reception center to serve migrants from the Middle East and Africa who come ashore. But there are delays in construction, and many residents object to any new migrant sites on their island. That story on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to creating community and community spaces with new parks, bike lanes, and walkable streets. Learn more at wardvillage.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now to test your knowledge on our backyard quiz.
In our backyard quiz, we're calling to mind a 19th century woman who wrote a classic work about Hawaii. She was English, born in Yorkshire in 1831, and she became a celebrated explorer, writer, photographer, and naturalist. She was the first woman to be elected a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. She was frail and sickly as a child, and problems with her health followed her through life. A doctor had recommended more outdoor activity, and she took the advice seriously. Her father gave her 100 pounds and told her to keep traveling as long as she could make it last. Her 1872 trip to Hawaii changed her life. In the Hawaiian archipelago, six months among the palm groves, coral reefs, and volcanoes of the Sandwich Isles, which was published in 1875, she wrote of visiting remote regions, which are known to few even of residents, living among the natives, and otherwise seeing Hawaiian life in all its phases. For today's quiz, we want to know the name of this uh, intrepid explorer. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. year, Oahu resident Johnson Choi has been going back and forth between Honolulu and San Francisco. He was in the city over the weekend and took part in a rally to stop Asian hate. Some point to the rise in violent incidents against Asians, described as hate crimes, as the reason to rally. I'm Jonathan Kim. On behalf of the Jindok and Pyeongshin Foundation and more than 2 million Korean Americans, we stand here today proclaim that the racism and hate crime must stop. Must stop. Johnson Choi is the head of the Hong Kong China Hawaii Business Association. He shared his thoughts following that Stop Asian Hate rally in San Francisco. It happened on Saturday, last week Saturday, and uh, it was in San Francisco, China, Chinatown. Uh, actually, it's organized by uh, quite a few groups. You know, it's uh, almost if you compare to Hawaii, uh, it's all the societies, the Chinese societies in San Francisco, Chinatown, and also uh, also a few other groups like uh, uh, Judge Judy Tan, former Superior Court Judge of California, retired, were organized, and so it was a big success. We estimated between 2,500 to 3,000. Wow. So we walked from Chinatown, we shouted, you know, we all excited, and uh, we went all the way to the San Francisco City Hall. Not only Chinese came out, you know, there were a lot of uh, other groups like Korean. In fact, one of the head of the Korean uh, uh, chairman that represents about 2 million Korean in North America also uh, came. The reason is the attack, the racist attack on Asians because most cannot distinguish between Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Japanese, or South Korean. So all of them got hit uh, pretty bad. And it's almost a daily event in California, in New York, you know, in all major cities. So everybody was uh, uh, united. And uh, the coverage was pretty good. You know, all the major TV stations was there, San Francisco Chronicle. Almost every newspaper and TV in California uh, reported that. Uh, and concurrently, uh, there were protests also in Los Angeles, also in Silicon Valley. So it's throughout California and also in New York City and Boston. So, so it's, uh, 
there's a coordinated effort to get the voice heard, hopefully by more people, by politicians that try to tone down on the tax, you know, and take out the Asians. So, so don't give people excuses to go out and, and hurt elderly people, you know, the old, older men, older women, you know, because they are the weakest and, uh, and least able to defend themselves. And you've come back and forth between the Bay Area and here over this last year. You know, what have you seen or what cases there in the Bay Area have really hurt your heart? The main thing is because of the COVID-19, right? You know, the way we handle it, I don't have to say anymore. You know, I thought the Asians were the ones that brought the COVID-19 to the United States. Many thought that with the change of administration that the attack on the Asians will kind of die down, but Apparently, for the last few months, actually, it has stepped up. So, so California and, and East Coast and a lot of cities where Asians are, are, are concentrated, you know, we see the situation actually is not getting better. It's getting worse. That's the reason why the Asian groups are, you know, coordinating, you know, try to get our voice heard that we cannot just sit back and, and let, you know, people attack us, you know, basically with no reasons. During your time there in the city, in San Francisco, and I don't know where you're staying, but have you felt that racist uh, attitude? I, I see the look, you know, mm. uh, from the eyes, you know, at Asians, you know, because, you know, obviously I look very Asian, you know, so you can see the look. But we try to stay away from the... We try not to do a lot of walking on the street, okay? And, you know, we all wear face masks, right? So we try to be a low po- lower profile. So, you know, if I see a lot of people that doesn't look too friendly, you know, uh, my wife and I will, you know, just circle around or cross the street and, and, and not to, you know, not to get ourselves into trouble. Uh, so you just have to be alert. And, you know, when we last talked, you were talking about the effect of your business because you provide what spirits and wine to uh, right. uh, places in right. Asia. And at the time, it was due to the, the the setback was due to the uh, the protests that were happening over there. How is your business doing? I mean, nobody knew COVID was going to happen on top of that. Well, you know, last four years, uh, the one business to China and, and Hong Kong is, you know, China has no duty going to China, uh, going to Hong Kong, but to China, the, the duties and custom went up uh, more than double. And uh, we thought when Biden took office, uh, he will do away with the, you know, the duties and customs because those are basically paid by the business, you know, not, not by the people, you know. Uh, unfortunately, this morning, the trade representative, who is a, well, she is a Chinese-American, uh, said on the news media that she is not going to propose to reduce or to do away with the Donald Trump uh, custom and duty. So if that's a situation, I don't see the you know any any improvement. You know you know it's not just me. You know all the export of California wine going to Asia will continue to be impacted. Uh, so we just have to sit tight and see you know how the situation goes. When we last had a conversation and you joined us here in the studio, we were talking about I think it was the new year that was coming up. Right. And you had high hopes for that, but then COVID hit, and then everything just, you know, dropped well, out of the, the bottom, dropped out of the, the industry. Is, yeah, like Hong Kong, you know, just like Hawaii, you know, the tourist trade is, is practically dead. You know, uh, how, uh, Hong Kong had uh, prior to the COVID nineteen, Hong Kong had uh, fifteen million visitor. You know, to Hong Kong each year. You know, twenty twenty is down to like to less than you know three mil. So they have all these. Uh, Quarantine, you know, just like Hawaii has, but Hong Kong is even tougher. You know that you are required 21 days. So, so, so it's very difficult when people are not going out. Uh, like right now, you know, the restaurant only allows four people uh, per table. You know, and a lot of bars are still closed. Um, so the overall retail sales in Hong Kong uh, has dropped by, you know. More than fifteen uh, percent. You you don't see things improving for your business anyway for a while. Not for at least for another six months because this kind of uh, COVID nineteen you know case like you know how you know US does have another spike up on the you know COVID situation right now right. You know every country every city is kind of guarded against you know the newcomer or people going out to spend time to to to, to enjoy themselves you know so they are not spending money. Um, Unfortunately, wine is not one of those things that, you know, uh, 
Yeah, I know people order those online, but but the overall consumption is bomb because you don't have parties anymore. You know, you don't have weddings anymore, right? Those are the occasion you drink a lot of wine. Well, here things are just starting to relax a little bit. Uh, you know, we're nervously looking at the COVID counts every day, but you know, they just announced here on Oahu that you can have weddings and larger groups up to 100. So, you know, that's a bright spot for the, the, the wedding industry, at least. Hopefully, when more people, uh, you know, take the COVID-19 the vaccines and, and, like, you know, I already took, I took two shots, right? So I know the state was talking about for those who already had uh, two shots, uh, they may consider waiving the, like, 10-day quarantine, right? So talk to my friends who are in the visitor industry. They say, well, they're still talking about it. So hopefully that will help so more people can come to Hawaii. And a lot of business in Waikiki are really, you know, really, even with the PPP, you know, money from the Fed and the state and the city and county, you know, they, they, I don't think they can last any longer if there's no more visitor coming, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, Hawaii's recovery is going to be longer. We're still not at the pre-COVID numbers, even though other states have, you know, their economies have have bounced back. Uh, It's just going to be a longer haul for uh, Hawaii. Yeah, especially for Japanese tourists, you know, because uh, Japanese have no problem coming to Hawaii. They take the test, right? But the problem Mm -hmm. is going back. They have to go through the quarantine. Chinese, it's the same. You know, it's a three-week quarantine. Going back to Hong Kong is also three weeks. So, so who has the time to come here to Hawaii vacation for, for 10 days and then to go back for quarantine for two to three weeks, right? It's, it's impossible. Yeah. Unless you're retired and have nothing to do, right? <laughs> so, so so I told my friend, you know, for Japanese, uh, say probably not until the end of the year. Well, unfortunately, the, the Chinese New Year was not so bright and cheery and prosperous as many had hoped. The, the tariffs. Side, you know, it's up to the you know the Biden administration, you know, because if mm-hmm. Biden you know uh, drops the tariffs, Chinese will do the same. You know, China's always like they reacting to U.S. actions, right? Political side is oh, so complicated, you know, because U.S. now we're in China as a major rivalry in, in all fronts. More sensitive issues. So, so it may take decades. I mean, I mean, it's unfortunate when all this rivalry come and there's a lot of harsh words the Chinese and then people, some Americans will take it very personally, right? So, so we become the, the victim. Well, fortunately, the, the, the cases are here in the islands are not like what we're seeing on the mainland, but certainly uh, you want to raise awareness. Well, Hawaii, you know, a lot of way because of the high percentage of Asians, a lot of people, you know, kind of feel like whatever happened in the mainland is kind of revolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to happen to them, but unfortunately, like there's about 200,000 former Hawaii resident living in California, and a lot of our friends uh, send the kids to college in the mainland too, right? Yes. And a lot of them had to stay. So you saying it's not going to happen to them personally if they don't leave the island? Yes, that's true. But that, a, that doesn't mean that it won't happen to their family or the immediate family. The Hawaii, the Asian community has to be, you know, alert too and, and try to be supportive. That was Johnson Choi, head of the Hong Kong-China-Hawaii Business Association. He was talking about the rise of violent incidents against Asian Americans. He was at a rally uh, in San Francisco this weekend and returns home to Hawaii this week. morning for our reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell joins us. He has a story about how lawmakers are looking to form a new group to determine the future of Oha's Kaka'aku Makai. Good morning, Blaze. Great to be back on, Catherine. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there was a rally recently. Uh, there was a group that was against the idea of any kind of development, uh, Makai, uh, of, the, of, the, of the highway there. Yeah, this group called Save Our Kaka'ako and the, uh, the hui that they're in rallied outside the Capitol a couple weeks ago. And this is the same community group that have long opposed 
any kind of development, Mackay of Alamoana Boulevard. And at that rally a couple weeks ago, House Speaker Scott Flakey announced that he wouldn't go forward uh, with plans to allow OHA, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, to do some residential development in the area. However, Spice is now proposing that lawmakers put together another task force, another working group to study the issue. Uh, ideally, the task force would uh, be comprised of members from OHA, uh, the Hawaii Community Development Authority, members of the House and Senate, and the working group would try to identify land that they could exchange uh, for OHA's parcels, ostensibly to prevent any development in the area. Yes, and for listeners who don't know, uh, OHA ended up with this land, you know, I think as part of a settlement over the ceded lands issue. Uh, and uh, the community, however, uh, was against development and cautioned about uh, turning this land over at the time. Exactly, and the, the community has been opposing any development for, I think it's been going on, uh, 16 years. If anyone remembers when Alexander and Baldwin wanted to develop that property in the early 2000s, and then it ended up where the legislature banned any kind of development um, in the 2006 session. But this year, OHA was trying to get that ban lifted, at least for their parcel, so that they could try to go forward with developing um, the area. OHA CEO Sylvia Hussey yesterday told lawmakers that as part of that land settlement, it was assumed that OHA would be able to develop those parcels to capture the full $200 million that was expected to uh, come out of that, out of those lands as part of the settlement. And, you know, there were some wild ideas about what should go down there. There were going to be luxury condos. Uh, someone proposed, I think, a Ferris wheel. I think I've been in an aquarium. Uh, you know, lots of different ideas. I think there was an idea for a, a, a light uh, a, a light garden. Uh, I think a Japanese company wanted to put something like that up there. But, uh, yeah, the community there pushed back, saying, no, it's public land and it should be uh, should remain as open space. Right, there is lots of ideas, and, and, and I always like to point out that the waterfront park, where all those mounds are, they used to be a landfill, and then they built a park over it. I always thought that was interesting. But oh. I also think it's important to point out that in, under OHA's current proposal, it doesn't look like they plan to build on any of that green space on the waterfront park. The parcels that they ID to do those residential developments, you know, they have state buildings, parking lots warehouses, they already have something on them. It wouldn't necessarily be, you know, we're going to take up some park space. At least that's what it looks like right now. Right. There's the uh, home emergency homeless shelter down there at the corner on the waterfront. I know that they've been discussing possible rentals for Native Hawaiians over there. There's the old APHIS building, which is, uh, uh, you know, offices. Um, mm-hmm. But you know they want to put up 400-foot high towers, and in order to make uh, make it pencil out and to get some revenue f- for uh, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Right, and that's OHA's argument is that they're given this land to benefit, you know, their Native Hawaiian beneficiaries as part of this uh, land settlement, and they believe they can't do it unless they're allowed to develop this land. In fact, uh, Sylvia Husky, the OHA CEO, told lawmakers yesterday that if this working group does go forward. OHA doesn't plan to come to the table. To them, it would be a step backwards because, you know, they already got this land. They don't want to have to go through the whole thing of trying to identify new state land that they could profit off of. So I understand that OHA has has their own little working group uh, as well looking at this issue. They do. In January, the Board of Trustees set up a permitted interaction group. We like to call it the PIG. And OHA's PIG is expected to uh, present some of their initial proposals and policy ideas at a board meeting on Thursday. I just checked their meeting folder. There's nothing in there right now, but we are expected to get a little bit more details, at least from OHA's side, during that meeting on Thursday. Okay. All right. We'll see how this develops. Otherwise, uh, I don't know, they might be trying again next year. Yeah, it might just end up turning into one of those issues that keeps getting kicked down the road and kicked further and further down the road. We'll be interesting to see if you reach a resolution with this working group. Okay. Thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and galleries and courtyards open during extended weekend evening hours. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Hey everybody, it's Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace. Every day we bring you the numbers to help you understand our changing economy. We've got you covered on the latest unemployment data, stock market moves, gas prices, all of that, but we need your help making our numbers work. Your continued support for your public radio station helps us keep you informed about what's going on in this economy. Here is somebody who can tell you how to keep the support coming, and thanks. Become a sustaining member at $10 a month at hawaiipublicradio.org. Earlier in the show, we told you about a British 19th century explorer and naturalist whose visit to Hawaii led her to write the book, The Hawaiian Archipelago, Six Months Among the Palm Groves, Coral Reefs, and Volcanoes of the Sandwich Isles. Born in 1831 in North Yorkshire, our mystery author was the eldest daughter of a clergyman and was often described by biographers in terms that could be easily applied to a Jane Austen heroine. High-spirited, independent, and unconventional. In 1871, she spent an eventful six months on Hawaii Island, learning to ride a horse astride instead of side saddle, climbing the volcanic peaks of Kilauea and Mauna Loa, she wrote numerous publications, including A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains and Unbeaten Tracks in Japan. In 1881, Isabella Bird was awarded the Royal Order of Kapiolani by King Kalakaua of Hawaii. And congratulations to our winner, Robert McMurray of Kona. You got it right first. We did have lots of callers on this, very popular today. Uh, we had a couple, Marianne and Brian, were listening from British Columbia via the phone app. And Buki and her book club in Kailua Kona are actually reading the book, The Hawaiian Archipelago. That's why I love the backyard quiz. Uh, if you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And it's time for part two of our conversation on the latest digital craze, something called NFTs. And if you're like me, you're like, what? <laughs> well, the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote picks up the story. Okay, a little vocabulary at the top. NFT stands for non-fungible token. They're basically a certificate of ownership for a piece of digital media, and they've been in the news a ton lately. Yesterday, we spoke to Bert Lum of Bite Mart's Cafe, who gave us a great overview of how NFTs operate. Go back and have a listen if you want all the details, but here's the key takeaway that we're going to talk about today. Why would someone pay money? sometimes thousands or even millions of dollars to purchase an NFT for a piece of art that exists only digitally and that you can probably access for free anyway. This is the question that Reed Austin has been asking himself since NFTs hit the scene. He's an illustrator and printmaker from Big Island, now based in Portland. I'm, I'm super not that into it in layman's terms. I've been trying really hard to justify the purchase of something that's just a file on my computer and I I can't bring myself to it. It just doesn't it doesn't sit right in my stomach. <laughs> I could see I I can understand why people would find it appealing. Um, especially I could see it being something popular with younger generations who are more normalized to technology and the digital age and I know there's there's going to be a crowd for everything but yeah it's just the a, a physical piece of art to me holds so much more value than a digital file of course this is just my opinion and and in the art world all opinions are totally subjective so yes reed is right his opinion is subjective 
but I think his opinion is representative of how a lot of people feel about NFTs. So to get to the other side of this issue, I wanted to talk to someone who had first-hand experience in this brave new world. And, lucky for me, the renowned digital artist and muralist Kamea Hadar just put up his first NFT for auction last week. His digital artwork, Eevee, was posted for one day on an online auction platform called Foundation. I personally didn't enjoy the 24 hours because, you know, auctions like that, live auctions are kind of an artist's nightmare because you're just kind of really, really putting yourself out there in in the public sphere, and and it it hurts. (laughs) If you could just kind of walk me through what the process was like putting up your first NFT for auction, just from the top. So I first heard about NFTs maybe a few months ago. Slowly, slowly, I um, got more and more interested in it actually creating the NFT. Um, you know, mint. W- w- the process is called minting an NFT. So, I mean, that process took maybe like 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, most of the time that it took me was just researching, learning, getting many, many different people's opinions on whether or not it was worth it, advertising the NFT, bundling the NFT with actually physical artwork to make it more appealing for buyers, you know, sending out mailers, explaining to people who are interested in it, how to get it, and then also acquiring the crypto and the, the crypto wallet and all the different things that I needed in order to, to do it. So those things take a few days because you have to apply uh, prove that it's you, uh, and then order some crypto in order to have some money in your wallet to pay for gas fees. The gas fees are the amount of energy that you're using on the blockchain. So, you know, when you mint something, it, it takes energy or it takes, you know, bandwidth, let's say, um, and you have to pay like a fee every time you transact. How significant would you say that fee is? Did you feel like it was a deterrent at all? It, it was maybe like a hundred dollars, um, and uh, and I and I would say that it depends uh, on what you're selling. I mean, I was hoping to sell my NFT for more than that, so I felt like it was worth it. But if you're making a lot of transactions and you're you're selling um, things that are under a hundred dollars, then then it's a losing endeavor. So and and also the thing about the gas fees is it goes up and down according to how many users are on the blockchain at the moment. So it's kind of like a, an Uber search fee. So when Uber is being used by a lot of users, like on New Year's Eve, price goes up because there's a higher demand. So it's the same thing. And people were kind of telling me that I should mint my artwork at a certain off time so it would be cheaper. But I wanted to mint it at a time where people are awake would bid on it. So I did it at 10 a.m. Hawaii time because that would mean that it would be 1, 1 p.m. West Coast and 4 p.m. East Coast. So I felt like at least most of the country would be awake. And so I paid a little bit of a higher gas fee in order to do it at that time. So after that whole process, Kamea walked away with about $2,700. For me, that much lower than I, than I get for physical paintings. To me, it was more just about the learning experience. And just kind of seeing the response and and just learning about the process. Right now, the main thing about NFTs is that most people don't know how to mint it themselves or even have a marketplace that could support the sale of an NFT. So right now, uh, all all of the artists are very much dependent on these marketplaces like foundations. That being said, I think in the future what it'll be like, how websites used to be. You know, websites used to be this really daunting thing of, and complicated thing, and you needed some crazy computer guy to help you create it, and then, you know, he would create a market, you know, a, a, a button in your website where you could sell things, and, and then to get the money would be hard. And nowadays you can get a website template in 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 seconds and you can input a Shopify button into your website and you can start selling your own things really quickly. So I think in the future, it'll very much be an easy thing for artists to mint and sell their own NFTs without these marketplaces. But again, going back to what I said before, it was definitely worth it. And anytime that I can make any money 
I'm happy. I'm sure you've probably talked to people about all the secondary markets, right? That was the question um, I was going to ask. These appreciate in value, and if <clears> I understand correctly, there's a little bit of a kickback for the artist. Yeah, so the artist gets a percentage every time the work is resold, 10% of every sale, which is something that doesn't exist in the real in the real world. Once I sell you a painting for $5 and you turn around and sell it for $500 million, that's all yours. You know, I don't get any of that. But in the NFT world, I get a percentage. That's nice as an artist. And then a lot of artists, they're, they're arguing that this is going to take... Um, the power out of the galleries and put it into our hands. I don't know if I see it that way. I mean, like I said, right now we're still very dependent on the marketplaces. And, um, you know, you're still selling something, so you're still dependent on, you know, what people are willing to pay, you know. So I, I don't know if if I see it that way. I think it's just another form of art and thus another revenue stream for artists hopefully it's going to develop and be something that is is a new form of art you know not just a digital copy but literally another form of art we are at a disadvantage when we speak to visual artists because we are an audio first medium and so i just want you to in your own words give a little bit more of a description of evie to kind of create a picture in our listeners minds so Evie is a portrait of a female figure of a bust. Her skin is white and she's looking down so you can't actually see her eyes. You just see her big eyelashes. And she's wearing a, a headdress of Hawaiian flowers. So all the flowers are actually black. Her face, her eyes and nose and mouth kind of have what looks like a Dia de los Muertos type of um, coloring. So she has black around her eyes and black around her nose it kind of and what looks like kind of the black lines on her lips that make that you know in the day of mexican day of the dead they kind of have that makeup that looks like a skull and the image in general the composition is very similar to the composition um of my album cover for the band the green and of their acoustic album entitled black and white so another thing about my nft is i i i made sure that it was an image that exists only in the digital realm at this moment in time. Um, so what it is is it's a it's a digital mashup of a few different oil paintings, and then I digitally worked on the image. So the image itself, uh, in its entirety, is, doesn't exist on canvas. It, there's just bits and pieces from different paintings of mine that I mashed up to create the image. So right now. The NFT is very much unique. I don't want this to come across as as dismissive in any way to your work. Right. Um, but I did look at Foundation's platform and your auction posting as the bids were uh-huh. going on, and it has the image, Evie, the image that right. is being auctioned um, mm-hmm. so people can see it and decide upon whether or not they want to bid on it. I mean... I could take a screenshot (laughs) of that image from its auction listing. Right. There is a part of me that that definitely agrees with you uh, as far as the NFT world, right? So you're saying, what's the difference, right? And I guess the difference is mostly uh, inside of the, the collector's mind and heart, right? So if the collector says, it matters to me that I have the NFT that Kamea created, and it matters to me that I can prove that Kamea created it and that it's just it's only the only NFT. And other people are like, well, I don't really care about that. I just care that I have a nice high-res image of it. You know, it just, it just, it, it's mainly in the mind and heart of the collector, right? Okay, this is the last piece of the puzzle. How can we get into the head of a collector? Enter Preston. Preston Ha'o. Um, I am a production coordinator and designer at Fitted Hawaii. Preston is a lifelong collector of all kinds of things. Started with, you know, Pokemon cards or baseball cards. You know, as, as years went by, kind of went to a little bit more materialistic thing. Shoes, hats, and then like toys or figures. As of late, coffee table books, Aloha shirts. All of that from starting from a young kid. 
um, in a way, it was kind of like collecting pieces of art. And that's, I guess, uh, started it. Preston already owns a couple of NFTs, and he's in the market for more. He had the second highest bid on Kamea's Eevee. Even with Kamea's piece, I'll be honest, like two days later, I kind of regret not bidding higher, even though that might sound crazy. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I saw the little back and forth you had with that other bidder. I, yeah, yeah. And and uh, it's I find I find value in his work as an artist. You know, right off the bat, I admire and appreciate his talent. And with this specific piece, there's also the connection of the Green Band, their acoustic album of Black and White. I don't know if you knew about that. Mm-hmm. Kamea mentioned um, it, yes. Yeah, so for me personally as well, it added another layer because the Green is one of my favorite bands. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like, they have been a soundtrack to some key partial chapters of my life. And, you know, that, that's another added value. It's those kinds of stories that build into um, wanting to acquire something. Is there any way in which this image is delivered to you, like in your inbox, or do you download a file, or are you, do you have access to the image the same way we do, but then also on the blockchain is the identification that you own that NFT? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's received. Well, once I claim it, it's in my wallet. I have access to uh, the original um, copy, dimensions, whatever. And also, for certain artists, there are, um, you know, possible uh, unlockable content. You click on the artwork, you have access to uh, certain files. Like, for example, I own an artwork that incorporates sound. I am able to receive the full original soundtrack of that piece. Wow. So, and that's just, one, that's just one example as well. I've seen one where... There's a there's a girl. She posted her artwork, and she's like, "This this really means something to me." And whoever acquires this piece of artwork will get the full description of what it really means to me. And they have the power whether or not to share that with others or keep it as a secret for for the owner. Um, there's some where they actually send the Photoshop file, where it you're buying a, a blank white. Um, block and the artist is saying you can purchase this and you can have the Photoshop file and once you open it you can remove the white block and see what the artwork is behind it you know so like there's there's all these different types of layers and sometimes it can be wacky or um, it's just an added layer to you know creators in general and it can be you know pretty Pretty, pretty gnarly if, if you really think about it. You know, it, it's been on the news, it's being made fun of, and it's, it's an extreme hot topic as of right now. And I just think that artists should at least just get their, their feet wet just for them to understand. And in order to understand, sometimes you just have to do it. I really think that in the future, it's going to be part of it, whether, whether we like it or not with NFTs. After talking to Kamea and Preston, I'll admit, I was on board. I was really inspired by the potential of NFTs as a new way for artists to support themselves and also as a whole other realm of art. So I called up Reed Austin again and told him everything I'd learned. If I were to focus more on the kind of experimental pieces that you were talking about earlier, how they really kind of take advantage of a digital medium, then I'm, su I'm super into that. I think that's really cool. Do you think you're going to make an NFT? No, never. Maybe not never, but <laughs> definitely not for the foreseeable future. I know probably in like a couple months even, but definitely in a couple years, I'll probably regret saying no, but honestly, no. <laughs> I'll probably look back on, on this and be like, oh man, I, I messed up. Each to their own, it seems. Mahalo to Kamea Hadar, Reed Austin, and Preston Ha'ol for talking to us for this story. We'll have links on our website to their work. So what do you think? Are you convinced? 
If you rush out to buy an NFT, we want to hear about it. Give us a call on our talkback line. You know the one, 808-792-8217. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule, too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Support for HPR comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, with support for nonprofits including Haleo Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. That's it for us today. Tomorrow we hear from customers who've been stopping by Love's Bakery's Middle Street facility as it prepares to shut its operations tomorrow. We would like to hear from you. Have a story to share? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. (music) 